The NBA playoffs are here, and we have you covered with the Ringer NBA Show, hosted by Chris Vernon. Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, all through the postseason, you can hear the Ringer's NBA experts, media members, coaches, and players breaking down all the action. Make sure to subscribe to the Ringer NBA Show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show. My name is Robert Mays. I'm a writer at The Ringer. Joining me on the other line, it's Danny Kelly. Danny, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Uh, We're getting close to the draft here, which is exciting, and uh, the weather's getting better. Can't complain. I love it, and thank you for mentioning that. We are going to have on Dane Brugger from CBS Sports a little bit later to talk about the safeties and a couple of the cornerbacks from this draft. But before we did that, I wanted to talk to Danny about Beast Mode because this happened, Danny. It, it was a joke for like three months. Like, oh man, what if Marshawn Lynch just came back to play in Oakland? And now right. we're here. He has reportedly agreed to terms with the Oakland Raiders. Obviously, because Seattle still has his rights, that a trade has to happen. But it does feel like this is on the doorstep, man. This is about yeah. to be a very real thing. First of all, just walk me through your emotions. It seems like a very weird time for you and the players that you've loved for a little while. <laughs> I know, seriously, it's like first there was the Sherman business, now there's Lynch. Um yep. I mean yeah, when we when we've gone through some stuff as as Seahawk fans with Lynch, it was always kind of a funny um roller coaster of emotions. I mean, obviously he's a really, really good player. Um, was kind of a you know, hero for a lot of fans. And then the ending when he kind of uh the the last couple like the last year of his tenure in Seattle was a little bit weird. You know, obviously he he battled injuries. There was the thought that he was going to come back, and then at the last second, he didn't get on the plane to Minnesota for the playoff game. It was, it was just a lot of weird stuff that kind of, you know, they he didn't really get along with the the front office. I mean, clearly, and so there was it was just kind of a complicated situation. But I think, you know, just as a player, people really really appreciate his style as a player. He's really physical, fun. You know, he's a funny guy. He's kind of just a crazy guy. You know, you never really know what to expect from him. So. When he retired, I kind of thought like, well, there's a pretty good chance, you know, this isn't necessarily the end for it for him just because, you know, he, he's just so unpredictable. So, you know, this is, felt, you know, you got time to kind of deal with the fact that he wasn't going to be in Seattle anymore. There's an entire season. It's not that part of it is, is come and gone as a football fit. I find this fascinating for a few different reasons. You know, you and I shot some texts back and forth. I called you actually uh, yeah. after this happened just to chat it out because I thought it was interesting. He was so good in Seattle. I feel like he was probably the second best running back in the league over the course of his time there after Peterson. Yeah. And I still think he's got a lot in the tank, but this is a different proposition in a couple of different ways, right? In Seattle, right. he broke a ton of tackles. He led the league in that area pretty much every single season. But he's running with Wilson as a threat, a lot of shotgun, a lot of read plays that make it easier for running backs to function. So you have that climate that's now gone and you replace it with what is probably the second best offensive line in the league. So for all the drop off that's going to happen because the numbers are different, the box is different, you're probably making up for it with the talent of the line. The question now becomes, has he dropped off enough as a running back and an athlete to where those things can be negligible just from a football perspective, yeah. you know, what are you trying to sift through at this point? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple of questions. I think you, you touched on all of them. I think first of all, when, when Lynch got to the, to Seattle from Buffalo, it took him probably like half a season or more to kind of really acclimate himself to this, to the Seattle system. I'm with Tom Cable, 
you know, it was a zone based system where cables explained it a couple of times where basically he's asking you to do what he he wants you to do from point A to B. And then once you get to B, what you do from, you know, point B to C to D to E is totally up to you. But, but it's very a discipline um, based system. And it took Lynch a while to get kind of, you know, acclimated to that. So there was that. And then like we, like you talked about, Lynch was really prolific in that read option offense with with uh, Russell Wilson. You know, he he, I think his bow legged style where he's very very agile. You know, in the short area, it, it really kind of just worked for him. I think that was a great fit for him. And so when you know you're, you're making one guy miss in front of you and then making a cut downhill, that's kind of his game. And that was that was really what they did well with the read option thing. And so. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to wonder like how different it's going to be when he gets to Oakland. How quickly can he acclimate? You know how, you know how well does he fit in in a scheme that's not doing read option very often? I think you know he's so good and he's so talented that I'm not really worried about him. You know, being a bad player, but I don't think I think you have to kind of temper your expectations that he's going to be like this. I mean, I don't know if anyone expects this, but you, you can't really expect that he's going to be the guy he was in Seattle during the heyday, you know, during 2012, 2013, 2014, when he was, you know, just running all over the league. So I think you have to temper your expectations quite a bit. But I, but I mean, overall, like, I think I, I was looking at PFF. He has 66 more broken tackles than anyone <laughs> over the last four seasons, and he's Nuts. only played seven games in the last two seasons. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And that's it's yeah. always the thing that I found interesting about him is that he was able to succeed independent of situation for the most part, right? The right. the Wilson threat and that version of the offense helped him, but it's not as if he ever played with an above average offensive line in Seattle. Now, 2012 was the best season that he had 5.40 yards a carry 1,590 yards that from left to right was Russell Okung, some combination of John Moffitt and whoever else played left guard, Max Unger, <laughs> Paul McQuiston and Brendo Giacomini. Right. That's a better offensive line than Seattle has now, but I don't understand that. That's all that it really is. You know, Okun no, played 16, 15 games that year. That was probably his better season. Unger was very good, but that's not the Cowboys. And it's certainly not this year's Raiders. So he's walking into a situation that's just very different in terms of the blocking and the talent around him in a, from the running game perspective. And I think that's why, even if you're not expecting him to be a 1500 yard guy, he can still be very effective. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I yeah, I think that the, I mean, you you were being kind of, you were being kind to the Seahawks lines there. Like they, they've been terrible for years. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he, he did make a lot out of, you know, basically nothing. And that's kind of been the Seahawks MO is like, they're just not going to invest in the offensive line in terms of money. So um, yeah, he, he made, and this is kind of funny and this is sort of feels like not really a compliment, but like one of the biggest things that Lynch did for the years in Seattle was he made a lot of plays that should have been like five yard losses into two yard gains. And, and, and that was yeah. huge for Seattle because it keeps them on track, you know, keeps them on schedule. And yeah, he, he just makes a lot out of nothing. So it's going to be really interesting to see what he does when he actually has like good blocking in front of him. Like he could he could potentially I mean, I'm just not big on Latavius Murray. I didn't think he was, you know, a very um, dynamic back. And I think that's probably why they didn't really, you know, try too hard to keep him in terms of the Raiders. And I think Lynch is so dynamic and he's such a creator that, you know, he could really make that offensive line. You, we could change our perception on that offensive line right now. 
you know, you kind of look at them like a really solid pass blocking group. But we talked about it, you know, when you called me, it, it's it, he has potential to make people kind of change their mind on this on this offensive line in terms of run blockers. Like they could be, I think Lynch could bring that that nastiness to the to the line, and, and you know, Seahawks offensive linemen talked about this all the time. But like they want to block for Lynch. Like when he goes out there and breaks tackles, it makes them want to like go hit guys. And so he could kind of change, you know, the personality of that offensive line a little bit. When you look at them versus Dallas, I think the biggest gap between those two groups is probably the mentality that starts with the center. Rodney Hudson is a cerebral pass protection, knowing where all the pieces fit kind of centerpiece. I mean, no pun intended of that offensive line. (laughs) Frederick is just a out of this world, preternaturally talented run blocker. His ability to reach guys a gap over and start those zone plays is there's nobody like him. So that kind of difference in the styles of where the line, the pivot point is, will always help there be kind of just a a gap between what Dallas is and what Oakland is. But if you look at the other guys, Osemele is a monster. Like, just just straight up a monster. And Donald Penn (laughs) is a really physical left tackle when you compare him to the other players at that position. Mm -hmm. Gabe Jackson, I think, was helped along from a physicality standpoint when Osemele got there. So I think you have pieces of a group that can be a physical, phys- dominating offensive line. There's just never been that final piece to unlock it. And I think that Marshawn Lynch can eventually be that. And if you add that element and him being able to rip off a six-yard gain that should be a two-yard gain, that's where this Oakland offense gets really dangerous in my mind. Because oh, yeah. even though they were exciting last year, we like talking about them, Carr's ascension has been fun. They finished 15th in rushing DVOA. They were the right. only top 10 offense outside of New England that finished in the top 10 in overall offensive DVOA and outside the top 10 in rushing. So oh, that's I mean, they do have, there, there are a little, there's ways to go for them to get to be exactly where they want to be. And I think this is how you get there. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I think like he's been such a tough player. And, and I mean, obviously the last season he was in Seattle, he had some back issues and then he, he missed, I think he missed all but seven games or whatever until the playoffs. And so um, there's kind of this impression that like he's fragile or whatever right now that, that his back could be a problem. But he was such an incredibly durable player for Seattle for so long before that, that it doesn't worry me quite as much as maybe I think a lot of people are worried about it in terms of, you know, his physical drop off. I just think he's a very rare human being in terms of just his toughness and physicality you know pure speed isn't really his game anyway he's just i mean when he, when he runs he's like made out of cement like guys just bounce off of him and he's so good at you know deflecting or, or you know making little jukes at the last second to deflect any contact and he doesn't ever take huge hits so in terms of his age i'm not quite as worried about it as i think a lot of people are i think he's still going to be you know a, a top tier runner he's so smart cerebral um, you know, he's really, really good at, at picking the right running lane to go through. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm definitely optimistic if he gets in there and, and, you know, if it all goes down, I think it's going to go down at this point. It seems like it will that I think he could be a pretty successful running back this year, even though he's 31 and kind of coming off, you know, an injury shortened season. And what they give him as a contract is going to be interesting. I don't think it's going to be a top tier running back contract. That would just be silly. He's been out of the league for a year and a half. If you're doing it for a reasonable amount of money and you're covered in that area, and then there's really no downside to this. He's going to give you an element right. you've never had. And when you combine that with Amari Cooper, Michael Crabtree, 
two really good complementary backs and probably the second best offensive line in the league, we're looking at what has most likely become the best supporting cast for any quarterback in football. For for real. Yeah. I mean, there's just weapons everywhere. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's no downside to this. To me, it's 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 a win win for everybody. I mean, the Seahawks, I don't think they care that they'll I mean, my guess is at the end of the day, it'll probably be like they'll swap seventh rounders or something like that to send him down. Like they're not going to there's not going to be a problem getting the trade done. And, and, and for Oakland, it's a no lose situation, too. I mean, worst case scenario, he just can't stay healthy. But other than that, I think he's going to be an effective back. He's the kind of guy who comes in and and makes the team you know, they, and they, and they kind of take on his toughness, I think. And that's what happened with the Seahawks for so many years is like, there's an element of toughness that he brings. And so, um, yeah, I'm with you. I think there's a, it's a kind of a no lose situation for all, you know, for everyone involved and, and, and there's not going to be a huge amount of, I don't think there's going to be a huge amount of guaranteed money or anything like that. So yeah, I, I mean, from just a physicality, identity, culture kind of point of view, I think it'll be really fun to watch the the Raiders kind of take on that Lynch mentality. This is also like if I know it's not going to make up for the fact that they're going to lose their team in two years, but for the Raiders <laughs> fans, this is pretty much the best PR move they possibly could have made. Like, oh, oh yeah, sure. sorry for stealing your team, but we're going to give you Marshawn Lynch for a year. Is that does that help a little bit? <laughs> yeah, for real. I mean, he's like a, he's a he's an Oakland icon. He's a legend down there. Exactly. Um, you know, universally beloved by Oakland fans, I have to say. And so. You know, it, it's it, yeah, like you said, it kind of takes some of the heat off of Oakland for for moving to Las Vegas, and and it's kind of one last hurrah in Oakland. I think you know, and and for Lynch too, like it helps him potentially get those stats he needs to get to the Hall of Fame. It, you know, if that's what he's missing right now, um, you know, it gives him a, a few more reps at least, trying to get these yards up and, and touchdowns up and all that to kind of make a better run at the the Hall of Fame. I've always thought this, and this is a conversation for way later, but counting stats and how much those should play a part only matters to a certain degree. I feel like if you were an iconic player for an entire generation, that's more important to me. And like I said, I think that maybe there was one better running back in the league for a five-year stretch. And in my mind, he's a Hall of Famer already, but I think that you're right. This could be the final thing if he is able to really help the Raiders fill that one last gap in how good of an offense they can be. This is the kind of stuff that can put you over the top. It absolutely is. All right, buddy. Yeah. That's uh, that's all the time we got. We're gonna start talking about some DBs later. I appreciate you doing this, even though I'm sure it's slightly emotionally problematic for you. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm good with it either way. I, I'm I'm just gonna be happy to see him play. So I'm happy that it's happening. And and yeah, thanks for having me on. And man, we're just getting we're so close. Let's uh, let's get this uh, draft going. Here we go. All right, bud. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, later. All right, we're welcomed now by Dane Brugger from CBS Sports. And I wanted to have Dane on to talk about the safeties, the corners in this year's draft. And this is the position group, just defensive backs in general, that I feel like I need the most help with. I feel like I can easily make a fool of myself without the right person on the other side of this conversation. So, Dane, thank you much for doing this. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. It's a, it's a fun time of year where we can, uh, you know, we're counting down the days uh only a few more days left and so it's uh, it's fun to talk about these guys figure out where they might fit next level and with the safeties in this group i feel like we would normally do this the opposite way corners would go first because they're the higher profile players but in this draft you have two guys jamal adams from lsu and 
Malik Hooker from Ohio State that are potential top 10, top five type talents. And that's just not something we see at this position very often. The comparison that makes the most sense is Landon Collins, uh, mm-hmm. you know, out of Alabama, goes to the Giants. I think the big issue with Collins was very good in run support. Then there's some questions about holding up in coverage. I mean, you saw it routinely on his Alabama tape. Um, you know, that the old Miss game still, I can replay in my mind the touchdowns he gave up. But then he goes to the Giants and he shows uh, considerable improvement uh, with his ability in pass defense. Uh, and I think Adams is similar where he's kind of a, a well-rounded safety where he's not really, uh, you know, elite in any one area. I mean, very good against the run. He holds up well versus the pass. Uh, you know, he's a very, very good athlete at six foot, 215 pounds. But is he truly elite in any one area on the field? I, I, I don't see it. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I think he can be a Landon Collins in this uh, in the NFL. And to me, you know, that's a Pro Bowl safety. Is that uh, worthy of a top five pick? Now, that's something that different teams will have different opinions on. Uh, I think a, a common thought among a lot of NFL teams, you know, kind of the old school way of thinking is, only true difference-making safeties are worth a top-five pick. You know, the Sean Taylors, the Eric Berries, uh, those types of guys, and it's Jamal Adams in that mix. Now, the one thing that Adams has really going for him, uh, the intangible factor. Uh, he, his leadership, uh, it, it, I, I've done thousands and thousands of prospect interviews over the last 10 years, and I would say that two of the best I've ever done, uh, probably, you know, top five, top ten, Two of the best I've ever done are in this class. Just interviews, talking to them, getting to know them. First is Cooper Cup, the wide receiver from Eastern Washington. And then the second is Jamal Adams. And you talk to people at LSU, they just rave about this kid's demeanor, his mentality, uh, the way he leads other people uh, on and off the field in practice and in games. I, I think that is something that will really resonate not only with the scouting staff, but also with coaches. And I think that's a big reason why uh, he's being considered in the top five. Uh, now, it, on the field, he's a very good player. Uh, you know, I think he has a chance to compete for Pro Bowls, similar to Landon Collins. But I think the the intangible factor is something, you know, he's the heartbeat of the defense. He, he really is that alpha. And that's something that I think NFL team, that, that's what Coach will be banging the table for, is that intangible factor that he brings. What stood out to you about his interview? Was it a particular answer to a question? I mean, what really sticks with you? I mean, when you say that, that that's remarkable, but was there a specific factor that just jumped out? I think you can tell when answers are pre-programmed, um, you know, the just the generic uh, answers that you, you receive from a lot of these players. They go through, uh, you know, the, the PR testing with their agents and, you know, they know the questions are that are, that are going to come and they just kind of rattle off what they've been pre-programmed to say. And I really, you get the sense when he, you ask Jamal Adams a question, he thinks about it. He truly uh, is, you know, the mental process is, is going and he gives you a very thoughtful answer. Uh, and then when you just see him interact with his teammates, uh, you know, you see him at practice, you see him interact with, uh, you know, at the combine, interacting with the guys that he just met a few days ago or, you know, maybe guys that he's not necessarily close with. Uh, it's really, I mean, he is a true alpha. He, he's the type of guy where he might not be necessarily the loudest guy in the room, but he is someone that when he speaks, everyone stops and listens. And what's interesting with him is that when you consider a guy in the top five, that's the range where you want superstars. That's what you're trying to shoot for in that spot. 
I think, you know, you probably say the top 10 is that way. And when you look at him, everything that people have written about him and just watching him play, it feels like his floor is extremely high. You know, when you, no matter what, he's going to be able to give you this, this, and this. He's going to be great in run support. He's very instinctual. He's going to be an f- incredible locker room factor. But then you think about how much range he has as a deep half or deep third player, just being able to be a difference maker in coverage. And that's not necessarily the same, what he does the best. So those are kind of the conversations you have to have internally. We know the floor is high, but with a fifth pick, as a Bears fan, with a third pick, is high floor the most important thing? And I don't know the answer to that because we see so many misses at those spots that isn't getting a really good player enough. I, I honestly don't know what to say. And I think that's probably the internal dialogue a lot of teams are having about him right now. Right. And I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. Uh, you know, I tweeted out a, a few weeks ago that to me, with Jamal Adams, you're more excited about his high floor than you are at his ceiling. Uh, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, that's, you need guys like that on your team you know, that help you win football games. But, again, going back to the notion of a top-five pick, uh, you know, ideally that should be a superstar. You, know, you don't want to be picking in the top-five very often. So you take a guy in the top-five that helps you get out of that basement. And it's something that you know, not every draft has five top-five players. Not every draft has ten top-ten players. It's, you know, it's not how it works. Uh, you know, and so I think that's where fans have some disconnect with, uh, well, is he truly a top five player? Well, I mean, are there truly five better players in this draft? I mean, there might not be five yeah. true yeah. top five players, but again, he might be, uh, you know, the fifth best player just in this particular draft. That's just kind of how it works out for me personally. I have, to me, there are two difference making uh, players in this draft, Miles Garrett and a guy we're about to talk about, Blake Hooker. To me, those are two true difference makers, guys that I would consider, you know, top five picks, potential superstars. And then after that, we have, you know, the next tier that are going to round out the top 10. And so, you know, those guys are going to make up, you know, three of those guys. Uh, well, and if Hooker even goes top five, uh, but some of those guys have to make up the rest of the top five and it might be a little different than, you know, your normal superstar. And Malik Hooker, I, I'm probably, I can guess why you'd say that about him, but uh, you know, he's that guy as a, center field, free safety, ball skills, making plays in the passing game. And when you're thinking about true safety impact and the way the league currently works, the reason that Eric Berry is worth what the Chiefs just paid him is because he's changed his game enough to where he can affect the game that way. 2014 Eric Berry wasn't worth this contract. And that's kind of the disconnect between Hooker and Adams in a way. Hooker is more like the current version of Eric Berry, where Adams is going to be maybe more like the 2014 version. So that's why you think he's probably a better fit as a potential superstar in this version of the NFL. Tell me if I'm wrong. No, that's, that's a great way to put it. And I, I, I like your uh, comparison with Eric Berry because it, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, with Jamal Adams, he's a very good player, but I don't think he gives you the difference-making potential. Uh, you know, a guy like Malik Hooker can change a game. Uh, yeah, he can take over a game with what he can do in the back half of the field. Uh, and when you evaluate the safety position, ideally, I mean, you're looking for three main traits. You're looking for range, you're looking for instincts, and then tackling skills. And I think Hooker has the ability to be above average in all three areas. Uh, you know, we see it on tape. It's change direction skills, it's play speed, the overall range, it jumps off the film. Uh, he's that true center fielder, uh, deep half of the field, who can, you know, really change a game with playing both sidelines, his ball skills. Uh, you know, downhill and run support, there's no question. He needs to get better. Uh, but it's not a question of 
want to or effort. It's just more of a question of technique and, you know, getting better, uh, just kind of breaking down and being a better finisher, which I think he can do. Uh, you know, we it, with Malik Cooker, you know, we have to mention Hannell, he's a one-year starter, and that's something that uh, it, it matters into the evaluation. Uh, you know, we only have 13 games of tape to really watch this guy. Now, those 13 really, really good games. Uh, you know, he had seven picks, uh, and he was a Whenever he got the, the ball in his hands, he, he made an impact. Uh, on those seven interceptions, he had 181 return yards. That's an average of 26 yards per interception. Now, if you have three interceptions on the season, you average 26 yards per return. That's pretty good. But when you have seven interceptions and you're averaging 26 yards per return, uh, that, that's really impressive. And it's something that uh, translates to the next level, something that I think will help him be a playmaker in the secondary. And, you know, the Ed Reed comparisons are uh, lofty. I mean, it's something that you don't want to put that on a, a player who's, you know, so young, still, you know, hasn't played an NFL snap yet, and he's already being compared to a future Hall of Famer. But in terms of skill set and what you think he can be, it's hard not to mention that name when you talk about Malik Hooker. It's funny because um, you know this probably as well as anybody, just as someone who's around the scouting world a lot. We see what we want to see in prospects. And if you think Malik Hooker's a really good player, you want to throw Ed Reed's name out there. If you're a position coach and somebody says to you, well, he's only been a one-year starter, your response is probably, yeah, he's only been a one-year starter. Can you imagine what he can be? And that's always so interesting that these weaknesses and these traits are either good or bad, depending on what we think these guys can be. So when you throw Ed's, Ed Reed's name out there, I totally understand it. Cause I think when I watch him, I see a long time difference maker. So it's not ridiculous to me, but I'm probably seeing this through my own lens. Yeah. It, you know, I think we talk about upside. It's a popular word this time of year. And it's, you know, arguably the toughest, the toughest thing to uh, evaluate as, as a scout is, uh, you know, how much upside does a player have? How far from his ceiling is he right now before he even takes an NFL snap? And that's where the evaluation process is so tough because you have to predict the future. You have to, you know, a general manager wants to know from his scouts when they're sitting in the war room, when they're doing their draft meetings and building their board, they want to know, okay, the player right now is X. Well, how, how long before he gets to Y? And what is that Y? How, how long, or, you know, what, what, what's that ceiling of what he could be and it's tough, and that's why that we do see you know so many misses in the first round because projecting upside and projecting how a player will react to the speed of the NFL, the lifestyle of the NFL, the competition in the NFL, it's something that it doesn't matter how good of an evaluator you are, you know, it's still something that is extremely tough to project. And that's why I think you know moving on a little bit further down the safety position why I think Jabril Preppers is such a fascinating just entity in this entire process, because we, we've heard through this ever since the draft kind of got, got going since the combine happened, everything else, there've been conversations about, well, what position does he play? What is he in the NFL? And part of the difficulty in judging that is because we didn't see him do that in college, but that doesn't mean he can't do that in the NFL. So that kind of, like you said, the diff, the, gap between point A and point B becomes more important and more difficult for certain players. And in my mind, Peppers is that because it's really hard to answer what is he now and what is he then because he was asked to do so many weird things in college. Right. And it goes to, you know, we're talking about quarterbacks and, you know, uh, system quarterbacks that weren't asked to do certain things in an offense. 
Well, it doesn't mean he necessarily can't do it. We just haven't seen it. And so yep. it comes down to, you know, value. And where do you feel comfortable taking a player like that where you're basically asking him to do something that he's never done or has done at a very, you know, rudimentary level? And with Jabril Peppers, you know, we see he's an elite athlete, you know, 5'11", 215 pounds. You know, he's a legit 4'4 guy. Uh, you know, he, we see him fly all over the field, but we also saw him struggle in coverage. Uh, tight ends were able to separate from him. Uh, he would get dominated near the line of scrimmage once blockers got their hands on him. Uh, so I, I do think there is something to be said about once he gets into an NFL camp and you, he's given one set of responsibilities and he's not stretched thin between, you know, at, at Michigan, he was in the offensive meeting room. And not, he didn't have just like five plays or a package of plays. He had to mm-hmm. know basically the entire playbook. And then he had to run down the defensive meeting room. Then he had to run down the special teams. And so he was just stretched so thin. And I get that from Michigan, you know, that you have uh, an elite athlete, a guy with special skills. You want to use him however you can to help you win football games. So I get how Michigan used him. But when he, you translate him to the NFL, once he's able to focus on just one set of responsibilities, uh, I think he'll be able to uh, grow and develop even more. But again, that's a projection. That's something that you kind of cross your fingers and hope that he's able to do it. And I think based on the athlete that he is, based on the instincts that he does show, because he, he does play like an instinctive player. Uh, he's a very smart player as well. Uh, he's fearless. He's confident. And so there's a lot of traits that you like. But it is a leap of faith because are you going to ask him to play a true strong safety role? Do you trust him in coverage? Uh, you know, to be a deep safety. Uh, there's a lot of things that you kind of worry about with Peppers, and I think that's why when it's all said and done, he'll be either in that late first, early second round range because of uh, the questions and his potential fit with an NFL team. When you think about that range, whether it's 28 to 35, is there a team in there, a scheme in there that you say, well, he could probably fit with what they'd ask him to do? The one that really intrigued me is at 30 in Pittsburgh. Uh, now, he's not Troy Polamalu. He's not. But I think Pittsburgh, they just they really haven't had that uh, that difference maker. Uh, and and mm-hmm. that's too much to say because no one's filling Troy Polamalu's shoes. But someone that can at least come close to filling those shoes and uh, provide a similar, you know, the versatile skill set where he can blitz. He can play near the line of scrimmage, but he can also cover backs out of the backfield and drop a little bit in coverage. Uh, just that the instincts that he brought to the field is something that that Pittsburgh defense has really been missing the last few years. So I think at 30, that, that really intrigued me. If he could come in and potentially play a similar role as Paul Amalu, and I don't think he'll ever be at that level uh, that Paul Amalu was, but maybe we can see him you know, grow and, and show some of the similar traits that made Troy so, uh, so special on the football field. And you look at that, you know, obviously they drafted Davis last year, but or maybe two years ago, I'm losing my time frame. They've drafted like 17 defensive backs in the last two years, so it's hard to keep track of all of them. But Mitchell, I believe all the guaranteed money in his contract is already gone. So when you're looking for an upgrade, there's nobody blocking him there where you'd say, well, they've already invested so much in those positions. Why would they keep going? That's still probably the area of the roster where they could use the most help. So that's fascinating to me. And you know, the, the other encouraging part about that franchise is overall, they've let guys come along slowly. 
So if you feel like you need a little time for him to really understand what he's doing at those spots, they're going to let him do that. Yeah, Mitchell is 1.8 in guaranteed money after this season. So that that's a good one. I, I had not thought about that one quite yet, but it, I'm honestly now we're in the range where like we're starting to see what those guys are going to look like in the uniforms and I'm getting excited about it. And you, you, you did that for me, which I appreciate. Uh, that's good. No, I, it, it's one of those intriguing fits that, you know, I, maybe it's not a perfectly ideal fit, but you can see it and it sure. wouldn't be a, a complete shocker if it would happen on draft day. So let's, I have one more safety I want to talk about just because, you know, his name was in the news and being talked about so much as we were going through the combine and everything else is Obi Melophone from UConn. And one of those reasons is that as soon as those guys get on the turf and people have stopwatches in their hands, some guys are going to look better than others. And what he did at the combine is it still doesn't make any sense. Six foot four, 224 pounds. He ran the 40 in 4-4, just 4-4 even. No, no, no other need, no, nothing else needed there. 44-inch vertical, which I, that doesn't even, that humans shouldn't do that. And his broad jump was 141 inches. So last year, we all freaked out about what Jalen Ramsey did at the combine, which we should have because it was very impressive. This guy outweighs Jalen Ramsey by about 15 pounds. He ran the 40 faster. His broad jump was six inches more and his vertical was two and a half inches more. So describe to me why this guy isn't a top 10 pick. Yeah, and another number, uh, includes a 10-yard split was 151, which to put that <laughs> in perspective, John Ross, you know, the fastest uh, 40 ever at the combine was a 149. So, I mean, just right there in terms of uh, that initial burst, that initial explosion, I mean, just a silly number at 225 pounds. Uh, yeah. It's tough because it's not like Obi Melanfonu was kind of you know a one-year starter. I mean, he was a four-year starter at uh, at UConn. He had over 350 tackles. Uh, he had four picks last year. So I, the body of work is there, and I, that gives us a reference point because we can watch four years of film and see okay, how does that athleticism translate to the field? And that's my biggest worry. Before the combine, I gave Melanfonu a third-round grade. And then he goes to the combine, blows it up. And, I, you know, I think we all expected him to do well uh, sure. at, the, at the senior bowl. Seeing him up close for the first time, I mean, the guy is shredded. I mean, obviously he takes care of himself. I mean, he's trained well. Um, but after the senior bowl, after the combine, I'm sticking with my third-round grade. I'm kind of, I, I don't know, maybe I'm being stubborn about it. But when I watch him on film, you do see flashes of that athleticism, that size. He's a very unique size-speed athlete. But I think the mental trigger is not where I need it to be for a, a top 50 safety. Now, he's going to go in the first round. I feel pretty confident about that. But when I, he just he needs a moment to see the play unfold. And so he's making a lot of his tackles down the field. Um, you know, there's a, there's a popular clip out there during practice or maybe it was during the game where Donald Pumphrey, 175-pound uh, running back, uh, you know, initiates contact in the, in the hole. And Melon Bonnu is on his heels going backwards. I mean, he just doesn't have that bump that you want in a safety. And then with the, with the speed and the range, yes, he can cover a lot of ground. But the mental trigger for me is the issue because he doesn't see the plays happen before they do. He doesn't have that anticipation. And so, you know, he's a step late often. And so it doesn't matter how good of an athlete he is. If you're a step late reacting and anticipating what's about to happen, uh, you know, not you know, no one has the athleticism to make up for that uh, and still arrive in, in time that he that he needs to. So 
can he get better at the, at the next level potentially? Uh, you know, maybe he will. Uh, but I still think that that's one of the toughest things. You know, I, I think that's it, it, instinctively kind of you are who you are. Usually instincts don't get better at the next level. And that, that's the biggest issue for me with Melon Fondo. I'd take him in the third round, but I'm going to let someone else take him in the first round where he's likely to go. That, that makes total sense. And it's interesting when you have that disconnect between how much, how fast the guy moves when he's not reacting to something and how fast he moves when that's all you have to do. And that's, it makes sense that that's how a guy that moves like that shouldn't deserve to go in the first round. All right, let's do five quick minutes on the corners here before you got to get out of here. And let's start with Marshawn Lattimore, because as a bears fan, that's really the guy I've thought about the most and considered the most with that third pick, just based on the other needs that they have. Just in comparison to other corners you've seen come out lately, who does he compare to and just where do you think his ceiling exists? To me, it reminds me a lot of Janoris Jenkins, uh, you know, former uh, ex-Florida uh, and transferred for a senior year, had some off-field issues, uh, and the Rams really got a steal with him. Now, Obviously, now with the Giants, signed that lucrative deal last offseason. But he's just he's a very fluid athlete, very twitchy, very sudden. And as a corner, when you, know, when you watch him on film, you just don't see that separation. Uh, between him and receivers. Now, he'll often play press. He doesn't jam much. Uh, it, the Ohio State corners really weren't asked to do that. But they do play press. They do get up in the face of receivers. And Lattimore, he just plays sticky. Uh, it's just hard for receivers to really escape from him. And even when he does give up a little bit of spacing at the top of route, he has the closing burst to react in a moment's notice and make up that space and make a play on the ball. So, uh, the biggest issue for me with Lattimore is just the soft tissue injuries, uh, yeah. you know, the hamstring. How does that play into uh, the final evaluation? That's where you just have to kind of trust the, your medical staff and say, hey, listen, is this something you think is going to pop up? Uh, you know, is this going to be a continuing problem uh, at the next level? And whatever my medical staff, uh, the doctors and trainers, whatever they tell me, you kind of have to go with uh, and kind of trust that. When is the last time you heard about a guy having surgery on his hamstrings, especially in college? I mean, I, I don't, I, that's, it's a genuine question. I, I can't remember ever happening. And when you have guys that have really bad lingering soft tissue issues, uh, surgery isn't even a, an, an end point or a solution for those players. So that, that gives me pause for sure. Yeah. And, and these issues go back to high school. Uh, yeah. He was expected, he was a top recruit. He was expected to get on the field immediately for Ohio State. But those issues from high school caused him to have the surgery and redshirt in 2014. And then in 2015, uh, it was the opposite hamstring that was bothering him. Uh, that basically, you know, he had like five tackles uh, in 2015 uh, because he barely saw the field because of his other hamstring. And, you know, to his credit, he, did, he, he didn't miss any time as a uh, redshirt sophomore in 2016, started all 13 games. But nonetheless, I mean, the, the best predictor of future injuries is past injuries. And it's something that teams have to weigh very heavily when you consider taking him in the top 10. When you look at him and Marlon Humphrey from Alabama, who a lot of people consider the second best corner in the draft, how large is the gap between those two guys for you? Humphrey's a little different. Uh, I mean, he's, he's bigger. Uh, and I think he's, he's probably the most aggressive corner in this draft. Uh, he is so physical, so violent the way he plays the game. Uh, but he kind of, if you're going to draw up a corner, that's what you want a corner to look like. He's north of six foot, long arms, a legit four, four athlete. Uh, the biggest issue with Humphrey is just down the field. Uh, he has a really tough time getting his head turned, finding the ball, locating the ball, making a play on the ball. And mm -hmm. that's kind of a big deal for a corner. So 
is, is that something that it can be a learned skill? Can he get better in that area? Possibly. Uh, you know, it's something that you see him doing flashes, just not on a consistent basis. And I think we're both these guys, uh, Lattimore and Humphrey, are both third-year sophomores, so very young players. Uh, Humphrey doesn't turn 21 until the summer. So wow. I think there is some room to get better in that area. Uh, and I think all the and why I think he's a first round pick is because all the skills are there for him to be, uh, you know, a blanket NFL corner. He just needs to really get improve in some of those areas. Awesome. Well, Dane, I know you got to go. Sincerely appreciate the time. This was incredibly informative. And thank you for letting me inform some people about a position that I have absolutely nothing. I know nothing about for the most part. So thanks a bunch and uh, best of luck. Enjoy the draft. And I'm glad there's a light at the end of the tunnel for you. Well, you too. I enjoyed it. Appreciate having me on. Absolutely. Talk to you later. All right. That's all we got. Thank you very much again to Dane for doing this. Thank you as always to Danny Kelly for coming out to talk about the Seahawks knowledge that we so desperately need. We will be back next week because the draft is almost upon us. So we need to do a couple more of these to really get ready. Thank you for listening as always. And we'll talk to you guys soon. 